All right. Well, this is the uh, we give a bit of time on Sundays to the life of the church, what we're doing, what we're about, and, and uh, aspects of things to pray for. We're going to be praying for two church plants. Um, if you're not familiar with the term church plant or church planting, it's basically like entrepreneurship applied to the church, starting something from scratch. Of Redeemer, we're four years old. And we're still technically not really an established church yet. We're still, we have a, a few things to go in some areas. Um, so we would be classified as a church plant. Um, church planting is the process of starting new churches. And if you're doing it right, you're going to be interacting with people who aren't already believing all the same things that you believe. You're going to be interacting with people who aren't connected yet with the church and helping people who aren't being yet helped by the church. And so um, these are two other churches that we help support. We pray for them. Um, I meet with the pastors semi-frequently. We give money to them. And uh, so we'll just talk briefly about them, and then we'll pray for them as well. So Nuova Vita and Salerno, yeah, we've not been to, if you're not, Salerno is near the Amalfi Coast, completely beautiful place to live. Uh, so if you ever want to visit them uh, on a church mission trip, it is very easy to do. In fact, we've been talking about that. Um, we might possibly organize something next summer, maybe. Um, so Nuova Vita will pray uh, for them. And then also, they, um, so this is a new church that we've, Took on. In fact, they're not really a church plant yet. There's three small groups led by, oh, sorry, two small groups led by three couples in a place in Austria called Steinach am Brenner. And as you can see, another beautiful place to live. I feel like as a church, we should just take on beautiful places to live. And then we can like visit them and you know, care for the poor people who live there. Um, so, uh, and here's the three couples here. Um, I forget all of their names. I do know the guys' names because I've actually met the guys in person. There's Johannes, Alex, and Jonathan. Johannes, who's all the way on the left here, uh, he, um, re- a one way that Redeemer is helping this future church plant is uh, uh, giving, donating some money so we can get some uh, leadership coaching and sorting out like where might he be able to apply himself best in what will be a future church plant. And... Um, what we'll do is we'll pray for them. Uh, just pre- I asked him to write up something briefly about them. So Steinach on Brenner is like 30 minutes south of Innsbruck, if you know where that is. If you don't, then sorry, it's in Austria. Um, at the moment, there are three families who are here. All of us get to be part of this by providing... Uh, oh, sorry, this is what I wrote to myself. All of us get to be part of planting a church in Austria by providing coaching that they need. And if it, hope, it might turn out to be more than just Johannes who needs help in ways, or actually through coaching him and, um, and connecting with him outside of the coaching thing, we'll probably find areas where we can help, like, oh, they need something for this, or they need money for this, and that's something that we'll talk about when those things come up. Um, and what we also can do is to pray for them. So we'll pray for these three families, as well as uh, Nuova Vita, who's over here in Salerno. So let's pray. God, we thank you that as a church plant, we get to be part of uh, planting other churches, even in small uh, ways now. Lord, I pray that we would always be a church that cares about people who aren't yet part of it, that cares about people who aren't yet completely on the same page with us in every single area. I pray we would, you would prevent us from being uh, just an inward-focused church that uh, only cares about the people who are already here. Lord, as we care for the people who are already here, one of the best ways to do that is to make sure that um, our world is more broad than Manchester, that our world is uh, more broad than the UK. And so that we pray for churches in, uh, here in Italy and in, Austri- in Austria, that you would grow them. We pray for the leadership in uh, Salerno, for the leaders that are there, Lord, that you would continue to build them up, continue to give them the grace and the wisdom that they need to lead that church well. 
And Lord, we pray for these three families who are going to be, Lord willing, a part of a church plant at some point soon in this small um, Austrian valley of Steinach. Lord, we pray for all the questions that they have now of what does it look like, uh, what is my role, how can I help, uh, what, what, how, how can we serve the people here, how can we love people well here. Uh, Lord, there's so many questions that uh, they have and that they're working through. I pray, Lord, that you would give them the answers to those questions. But more than that, that as they are wrestling through those questions, that that would also be an opportunity for them to grow in faith, for them to rely on you to come through. And Lord, I pray it would build up our faith as we get to pray for them uh, to be able to grow. Lord, we pray that more people in Steinach will know about Jesus than they do now because of these three families working together for your glory. We pray the same thing in Salerno, that Nueva Vita existing there will, be, um, will mean that more people get to know you who didn't know you before, that more people will get that rest and refreshment that we talked about that uh, don't yet receive that. Lord, in whatever small way you've called Redeemer to be a part of that, whatever sacrificial and generous way you've called us, I pray you make it clear and that we would be quick to respond when you make it clear. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Now, there's also, I didn't put this in the... Um, the mission update, because it was planned for later on. But we also, um, speaking of, of our church, exciting thing, we, get to, we have two new appointed roles for Redeemer, one of which has already started but from Liz, and one uh, that will start in September. So Liz, if you remember, we talked about Liz coming on as the uh, operations and discipleship coordinator. Uh, what does that mean? Good question. It means uh, so larger church outreach stuff. So we're talking about Christmas. We're talking about um, a thing in uh, September, like the Cholton get-together that we might be involved in. And we're talking about larger things, larger scale things, like bigger than missional community level kind of stuff that Liz is going to help a lot with. Uh, and then also um, with coordinating stuff that happens on Sundays to make sure that we have a good Sunday experience. There's um, how we're doing hospitality, how we welcome people, like all that kind of stuff. Liz is going to help out a lot with that and already has helped. So Liz is on now. If you have any, if you're, if you're like, I love doing operations and I have some good ideas, um, chat with Liz. Um, and, it, so, and so Liz is going to be on that role, which is fantastic. And Dan is coming on. Dan Bird is coming on as a, um, a voluntary role as a uh, discipleship and mission director. And he's going to be doing similar things, but in different areas than Liz will be. He's going to be um, helping with some missional community coaching. He's going to be preaching more. And he's also, one of the main things, he's going to help develop a leadership hub here in South Manchester, not just for people in the church, but people at work, people at home, and in ministry. And so more on that kind of as it comes about. But we definitely need to pray about that. Because we don't want to proceed in what we think is a good idea, and then that's it. In our own wisdom, we want to make sure that um, we're following Jesus as we do. One way is to actually talk to him. So let's talk to him. Jesus, we thank you for bringing Liz and Dan into our church. Uh, we thank you that uh, there are these opportunities that they seem to fit really well in. Lord, we pray that as they grow into those positions and roles and help out in the ways that they are uniquely gifted to be able to do. Uh, Lord, we pray that again, the same thing we prayed for Nueva Vita and for this church plant in Steinach. Lord, we pray that uh, more people here in Charlton will get to know you. We pray more people who know you who are in this room here will really enjoy the relationship they have with you and not just have one and tick a box off. Uh, so we pray that you would enable Liz and Dan to be able to fulfill the role that you have for them uh, in, uh, for Redeemer. And they can only do that if you, Spirit, are working through them. So Holy Spirit, we rely on you to work. Amen. Amen. It's exciting stuff. I mean, we actually we have the makings of a staff team. How crazy is that? That is insane. I know. It's amazing. It's, I'm, I'm boggled. Um, if you want to stay connected with Redeemer, 
uh, with the stuff that we're doing. We send out an email once a week, and you can go to this website. There are also QR codes behind your seat. Uh, if, you, if you are part, sort of coming around Redeemer and haven't yet done that yet, um, definitely jump on there, because then you'll know what we're up to. Enough about notices and updates. Let's move on. So we, this is the third uh, and last um, series uh, message in this series on Philemon. We've been looking at what does it mean for a church to live out the way that God's called us to. What the common unity that we have through Jesus sounds great on paper, maybe, sounds maybe great theologically, but what does it actually mean in real life? And that's what Philemon is all about. So I'm going to read Philemon. If you have an app or if you need a Bible, there's some in the back corners. Um, You can grab a Bible or um, open up your phone to Philemon. Now, if you type P-H-I, it will probably go to Philippians. So P-H-I-L-E-M-O-N. Sort of near the back, near Hebrews, if you know where that is. I'm just going to read the letter. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, and also to Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner in Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become both useful to uh, you and me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I might have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, be with your spirit. God, as we just hear, uh, as we just heard your words, we pray that we would be able to understand them well, and that we not just with our heads, but with our hearts and our bodies and our, our lives, and that we would be able to live in a way that, uh, that this letter instructs us to do. Lord, I pray for the words that I speak. They might be words from you and not from something of my own. And we pray we would all come away more encouraged by the love that you have for us. Amen. 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 All right, so just to give a brief recap of the story, um, Onesimus was a slave. Philemon was his master. Uh, very different from 
uh, slavery that we think, like human chattel, African kidnapped kind of slavery. Um, if you have questions about that, um, definitely bring them up after the service. I'm happy to talk about what slavery was like. Not that it was fantastic, but it was different. Uh, it wasn't like a boss worker situation, but it also wasn't, the people didn't own people. So Onesimus was a slave, Philemon was his master. Onesimus ran away. So it kind of shows not the best situation if you're going to run away as a slave. And he stole from Philemon, his master, to finance his journey. He ran into Paul in this other city in Rome. It was much farther away, like over a thousand miles. Uh, and he becomes a Christian as he runs into Paul. Because of the importance of rightly living out Christian community, uh, Paul sent Onesimus back to his master uh, to be reconciled. Basically, Paul is saying, Onesimus, you're a Christian. Philemon, you're a Christian. You guys got to work this out. And regardless of wherever that means for you're a slave or not a slave anymore, you have to work this out between you. You must live the truth of being believers together out. And Paul wrote this letter that we read to be delivered by Onesimus to Philemon. Now, one, we, we don't know actually the end of the story because they're not really given it and it's not written down anywhere. But the very fact that this letter survives proves that probably what happened was all the things that Paul said was going to happen. If Philemon, receiving this letter, said, yeah, I'm not going to do that, he wouldn't keep the letter as evidence to proof that Paul told him to do that. So just a little thought there. Now, this is the last of our Philemon series. Uh, the first one was about Onesimus, was about facing, um, facing when we wrong other people and also being vulnerable when other people wrong us. The second one, um, we talked about Philemon and the sacrifices that we are called to make for community, especially with respect to forgiveness. And this week, we're going to focus on Paul. So Paul, he's an outside party. He's seeking the good of Onesimus and of Philemon, but he's not like directly involved. And Paul's theme is mercy. Now, what do we learn about how we ought to act through this letter? Like, what does this actually teach us as people? Because it's a different world. We live in a totally different world. I think uh, there's definitely some themes that we can, we can uh, learn about. If you think back, we've definitely learned through Onesimus. I mean, none of us have been runaway slaves, but through Onesimus, we've learned what it means to be vulnerable when it's difficult. Uh, we should also be like Philemon and, and extend forgiveness when it's difficult. But this one is particularly about Paul seeking the mercy of other people. That's what a church kind of ought to be like. Seek the mercy of someone else. And Paul goes out of his way to do just that. Now, if you have questions, there will be a thing on the bottom of the slides here. Um, there will be a website. It's an anonymous website. You can put any questions that you want through, and then at the end of the sermon, I'll just bring them up and talk through them, and we'll see if we can come to some answers. It's really questions or comments or thoughts. So any, any of those things you want to add. Oh, it's not on the bottom. Oh, it's not on the bottom. Well, if you go to redeemermcr.com slash ask, very easy to remember, um, that you can send anonymous questions in, and we'll look at it. Now, like vulnerability and forgiveness, I think we all like the idea of seeking the mercy of others. We love the idea of us, of, of us helping other people. We like the idea of other people helping people. We really think that communities should be about helping other people. We really think, and we rightly should, that the church ought to be about helping people who need it. The church ought to be about mercy. Surely, God's family, God who is the father of mercy, if it's his family, we should kind of live this out. Now, the only way that our church can actually do that, that our church can be about seeking the mercy of others, is if we rely on him to do that. How was, our, how was a church different than any other organization? Well, it does talk about like, God and talk about his action in our lives. We cannot be as a church what you aren't as a Christian, so maybe you like the idea of mercy, but if you aren't merciful, guess what? You're part of the church is just people. Like we're not going to be a merciful church. 
So we cannot be as a church what you aren't as a Christian. So remember as we, as we go through some of these points um, that we can't be as a church what you aren't as a Christian. But thankfully, through the work of the Holy Spirit and the refreshing presence of Jesus, we actually get to be that kind of church that we want to be. We get to be part of that organization that is mercifully helping people. Um, and we get to lavishly, other peop- uh, lavishly love others who don't seem to deserve it. And so that's really what we're going to learn about this week. Uh, the very first thing, though, that Paul does in this letter is he identifies with other people. He identifies with others. So how does Paul, if you look at the very beginning, how does Paul introduce himself? This is Paul, like, uh, like lead apostle, like massive director, like super rock star church leader in charge of stuff. And how does he first identify himself? Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. So he's, he's saying, I'm a prisoner before I'm anything. That's, who I, that's how he's identifying himself first. That kind of sets the tone of how Paul's going to talk about himself. Typically, in other books, Paul does lean on his authority. And he says, I'm Paul the Apostle. If you didn't remember, like, I'm, the, I'm that guy. I saw Jesus resurrected on the road to Damascus. Anyone else? Oh, you didn't see him do that? Oh, yeah, I did. Like, Paul can say that. But not here. He's identifying uh, with, with the people who he's writing to. And then... Um, uh, what he's also not doing, he's not proving himself. He's also not proving his office. He's not saying, well, I got elected to this position or God put me in this position or here's like how you know, I climbed the ladder of success and now I'm like the leader of the church. Now, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he could big up himself, but he doesn't. He doesn't talk about his accomplishments either. And right in verse 1, he calls Philemon uh, a dear friend and fellow worker. So he's identifying with this person that he's writing to, that he wants to do something. He wants Philemon to, to free Onesimus. He wants Philemon to forgive him. And, but what is he, he doesn't start with that. He starts with, oh, you're my dear friend and fellow worker. Now, the word fellow worker is not really uncommon for Paul to use. He uses it in a lot of letters, uh, often referring to those who he does ministry like alongside with, those who he works alongside. Uh, in verse 2, he also uses the term soldier, which is kind of similar in that respect. Those who were in the fight together, like with Philemon. So Philemon's like, we're in this together. It's not like me versus you or vice versa. Like, this is us together, working together, in the fight together. And in verse 17, Paul really stresses this with with partnership. He says, if you consider me your partner. So if you consider me a partner in, in work, if you consider me a fellow colleague, please listen to me, what I have to say. I'm not your superior. I'm not your apostle. I'm the partner. So there is an identification with Philemon that Paul is intentional about. He's not using a directive or an order from on high. Whatever Paul is going to call Philemon to do, it's coming from a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, someone who's in the community with him together. In identifying with Philemon, Paul's including himself in this hard work. He's with him. He's sharing the load. He's not just saying, you, you do that and you figure it out. They're, he's in it together. So he doesn't just identify with Philemon which might be easier because Philemon is like you know, the middle class version of the person in this letter. He's the, the guy who's well off, who has the house, has a household, has a church meeting in his house, a new church, a church plant. But he also identifies with Onesimus, the more working class background guy. He identifies with both. With both. In, in verse 10, Paul calls himself Onesimus' father. He's like, Onesimus is like a son to me. He calls him his very heart in verse 12. And in verse 17, Paul puts himself in Onesimus' place. Like, when you see Onesimus, view him as you would view me. Like, welcome him as you'd welcome me. That's a very humble thing for Paul to be doing for both parties. 
He could have just said, Onesimus, you need to do this. Philemon, you need to do this, and moved on. He could have appealed to his apostleship, but he doesn't. He takes the humble road. He also takes, this is a longer road to do this. He could have just said, okay, figure out your behavior, and then just do it. The other thing he doesn't do, which would be, I think, difficult in anyone in this situation, he doesn't take sides. He's not saying, this is the right one, this is the wrong one. He's not saying, oh, I know, and this miss Philemon is really horrible, isn't he? Okay, why don't you stay here with me and we can hang out. Or Philemon, oh, Anisimus, I know, he's a pain, but you know, just, just like bear with him. Like, he's identifying with both of them. Onesimus needs to face Philemon. Philemon needs to forgive Onesimus uh, and free him. They're both dear to Paul. He doesn't pit them against each other because they're both part of the community, living out their common unity together. Now, as a musician, um, I have my music gods that I bow down and worship. Um, I know I'm not supposed to say that as a pastor, but as a musician, I have my music gods. And one of them is Phil Keggy, if you don't know who this guy is. Not, uh, nerdy people do. So I just called you a nerd if you know who he is. Um, but he is a freak of nature guitarist. He looks like a human, but he's not. He's a freak of nature guitarist. And one particular time when I went to one of his gigs, uh, a friend of mine who just as, if not more nerdy than me with respect to Phil Keggy, we got there really early because we heard on a radio station that if you got there early, you could help them set up for the venue or something. We didn't really care about setting up. We wanted to meet Phil Keggy. Um, so we got there really early and helped set up. And then there's Phil Keggy just standing around like he's a normal human. Remember, he's not a normal human. He's a musical god freak of nature. And he's standing around like he's normal. And so we uh, end up talking to him. And like, who knows what that cringy conversation must have been with. But a bit into our conversation, some other people join us. And now we have like a circle. And he's like, oh, hey, thanks for coming. Yeah, I'm Phil. Um, What's your name? Blah, blah, blah. They introduce themselves. He goes, oh, have you met my friends Greg and John? Friends? <laughs> this guy just called us. A fr- I mean, okay, he didn't know us. We didn't know him. We have not spoken since. But he called us friends. Now that little thing, as I mean, it does, what did it cost Phil Keggy? Cost him nothing. But that little thing in identifying with us in the super small way, even with that single word, made us feel amazing. It was like Phil Keggy called us friends. Remember that? Yeah, I remember that. that was so cool. Okay, okay. Like, it, it was. It, it felt really good. And if you've ever been in a situation like that, where maybe you felt. Uh, overwhelmed or not sure of yourself and someone acts or calls you a friend or acts in a kind of really welcoming way, that's a really nice thing when someone identifies with you. That's what we, we kind of want that in our lives. We want people to identify with us. Even if they are a uh, legendary rock musical freak of nature like Phil Keggy. But the thing is, we like that, but it isn't easy to do. It's not especially when we come in contact with personalities or traits that we really don't like. Like if we come across someone who's self-righteous, like probably Philemon, it's really difficult to identify with someone who's self-righteous. You want to distance yourself from them. You want to pit yourself and other people against them because you don't want to be seen as that and you want to signal to everybody else, I'm not like that. Or what about um, uh, how we treat classes? So uh, Paul was a Roman citizen, which is kind of a high-class situation in Rome. Onesimus was a runaway slave, low-class but Paul is identifying with him. He's not saying, I'm better than you, or, and even something vice versa. Oh, those high-class people, you know, those middle-class people, oh, those working-class people. Like, we talk about class all the time, but in a way that pits people against each other. What, is it, what could it look like for us to identify with people instead? This would, identifying with people for Paul would only be hard insofar as he's prideful. As much as he's prideful, that's, how diffi- that's why it would become difficult to identify with somebody. 
our identification with others is hindered by our pride, and what we'd rather do is kind of choose to be aloof, like, oh, yeah, I don't really get involved with all that. And when that happens, we think the reason we can't identify with that person is their problem, but that's not true. It's our problem, because we're prideful. That person, maybe they have problems. Yeah, everybody does. But the reason that we're not identifying with them is because we're prideful, not because they have some issue with being self-righteous or something. We choose to be aloof because we don't want to get our hands dirty, we want to keep the cool distance. They're them, I'm not, so let's just kind of keep things the way they are. Why does Paul get involved in this? He could have just kept things the way they were and could, could have kept Onesimus for himself and life probably would have been on the surface at least a little bit easier, but he didn't because he believed in something deeper. He believed in the common unity to be lived out. And we can't keep the status quo going either because we're called to identify with our brothers and sisters. That's a form of unity. Regardless of whatever political party they stand for, regardless of their accent, regardless of whatever uh, country they've come from, even one that might have uh, far reaches beyond its own geopolitical power like America, just saying, um, even Americans can be friends with people. It's a difficult thing, though. It's a difficult thing. Not for Americans. We love everybody. No. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, the first thing is about identifying with people. That's what Paul kind of um, really does well in this letter. The second thing he does, though, he doesn't just identify with them because identifying with someone is nice, but no one will change just through mere identification. Nobody has ever changed because they felt nice. It requires some kind of movement going forward, and that's what Paul does next as he challenges people. He doesn't just identify with people. Uh, that, that will not help people move forward um, Empathy by itself doesn't really help people move forward. It helps them feel comforted and safe, and that's a good thing and a necessary thing, but by itself is an incomplete thing. Paul goes another step and challenges the people that he identifies with. And we've been talking about mercy, um, and really, what, mercy just means seeking the good of other people, ha- having them get the good that they need. For Paul, seeking the good of Onesimus and Philemon meant challenging them. They both had... These speed bumps that without Paul kind of pushing them a little bit, they probably would have never gone into. Now challenge, if it's something that's good for somebody to do that thing, challenge can be a form of mercy. Calling someone out of something bad towards something good is a merciful act. It's a good act. Now Paul has challenged Onesimus because he's sent Onesimus back to Philemon to face the wrong that he did by stealing and, um, and, and also face going into the church that he was originally called to be. Uh, for God's community, but Paul and Paul also challenged Philemon, uh, and he was challenging Philemon to free Onesimus, to forgive Onesimus. We talked about that in the past two messages. And each of these occasions, Paul's the one who's the catalyst for this change. That's not an easy thing to do, because we see awkward from 100 yards back, and we're like, we're going to avoid that by going the complete opposite direction, because there might be possible awkwardness in our future. It's something that requires strength of character, something that requires endurance. That's because Paul is more concerned about heart change than behavioral change. He could have just said, Philemon did this, and this, and this, but he's concerned about something deeper, something that matters more, about heart change. He really wants his friends, he identifies with, he really wants his friends' hearts to be changed. Look how he interacts with Philemon in verses 8 and 9. It's like, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do this thing, but I want to appeal to you on the basis of love. I want you to want to do this, to desire to do something good, not just do it because Paul told me to. And also in verse 14, he says, uh, I, don't, I, I don't want you to do anything like, without your consent. I don't want to force you into doing this thing. I want you to want to do it. But Paul is concerned about Philemon's heart changing. 
and understanding, understanding the common unity that he and Onesimus share to people who are on different poles of the, uh, the cultural spectrum. The hope is that heart change would lead to behavioral change. Like the, we want the one to lead to another. A change in behavior will work once, but a change in heart will mean change behavior over a lifetime. And if you have kids, you know exactly how true that is. <laughs> I said, don't do that. I said, don't do that. I said, don't do that. It's like, it doesn't, you know, after a while, you can only get, there's only so much mileage out of just telling your kid how to behave well instead of working on their hearts. And working on their hearts is a difficult thing that I will avoid with every part in me, unless God calls me to do it, which is unfortunately all the time. So patient and gentle persuasion is really how Paul gets at it. It's almost two-thirds of this letter. And this is actually a longer letter than normal letters that were written then, like personal letters. But he's, he's writing, you know, uh, a while before he actually tells Philemon what he wants to do. So he's taking his time, he's patient, even in the way that he's writing, he's patient, and he's gentle. And uh, he chose not to, the, remember, he chose not to prove himself or his office in this. Now, being merciful to other people is not really easy. It's a difficult thing to do. It's a long road. And it also, it takes longer than we want. It takes longer for a heart to change and the behavior to alter. Again, parents, get an amen, yes. But a changed heart has so much better results. I mean, if you have a tree, let's say you have a tree in your back garden, and some of the leaves, they turn brown and they fall off, would you take those dead leaves, paint them green, and staple them to the trunk of the tree? Now, if you did that, your tree might look like a living tree from a far off distance, but the closer someone got, you'd be like, what in the world is going on with that tree? What did somebody do to that thing? Like, they seem to be wanting it to look good on the outside, but there's a reason why it was dying underneath. You'd have to know what was going on underneath in the roots and the health of the tree to know what was going on above. You need to look at the roots. Is, are the roots healthy? Is it getting the nutrients that it needs? How a tree is doing below the earth is a key to how it will perform above. I mean, if you see some kind of car crash about to happen or in progress, how could you not say something, especially if you're the passenger and it's about to hit you, right? It's like, no, no, don't do that, don't do that. If we love others more than ourselves, we will challenge them. Hopefully we'll do that gently and loving and patiently. And let me say too, this isn't just some kind of formula, like identify with somebody, then challenge them, then have patience, and that will magically equal heart change. Everybody's good. That's just not, unfortunately, that's not really how it works. I know Christine and I have definitely lost friends over things that uh, people needed to be challenged over and just didn't want to do it and didn't want to talk to us at all after it. Sometimes it goes well and we praise God for those times, and sometimes it doesn't. But regardless of the outcome, regardless of however other people choose to act, this is how we are called to act. We are called to identify with people and challenge them in loving ways, challenging them to live out their common unity. Now, it's no way to love someone to see where they need to change and not challenge them. Like, that's just a way of keeping the status quo. That's not really loving. That's loving yourself because you don't want to get into the awkwardness. It's not enough to just identify with someone. If you truly love them, you'll step into their mess and help seek their good. Now, let me also say, too, there is a line between seeking someone's good. We can use some religious language here to, in order to be meddlesome in order to get into someone's drama, to get in someone's life that didn't ask for it and actually doesn't need it, right? We, let's not use like religious language to make up for the kind of thing that we just want to do on our own, which is getting our fingers in everybody's lives. Like That's not what we're called to do either. But I think really, for most people that I know in Redeemer, for most of us, the issue is this. The issue is more often not stepping into places where God's really calling us to. Maybe some of us are meddlesome. I think generally most of us are probably more prone to just kind of sit back and let the status quo continue. 
Our fear, maybe this too, our fear of being seen as meddlesome or our fear of being meddlesome will keep us away from the actual thing that we really ought to be involved in. So instead of, instead of taking one step back, we take like five or six and we never actually get involved in the things that God wants us to. But it could be that God has called you to be the agent of mercy in a relationship. I'm sorry, because that's not fun. But it is glorious, and it is a good way to live. And what, how, how else is it going to work out with your friendship? It could be that God has called you to work to be the agent of change in some difficult uh, relationship, a difficult situation. Seeking a changed heart. Not just changed behavior, but a changed heart means we care about the person more than the task, whatever that might be. We care more about the person than the awkward situation, however awkward it might be, and more than ourselves. And seeking someone else always comes at a price to ourselves. Do we love others more than ourselves? If we do, it will come at a cost to ourselves. And we can't be as a church what you aren't as a Christian. Now, we need to challenge ourselves and we need to be challenged by others. All of us need this in our lives. It's not just about only we have to challenge others. We have to accept that challenge ourselves as well. And we have to uh, seek out those challenges. I know I do. With the language of the gospel, with grace and patience that comes from how God called us to live together. This is how we're made. This is how God makes all of this stuff work. And in seeking mercy for others, our first step is to identify with them. Then we seek how, when those situations come up, if we can rightly challenge them. And that's how Paul's working in this letter. And we've seen how much Paul cares for Onesimus and Philemon. He cares for them a lot. He cares for them so much that his own joy is tied to them. He he gets refreshed through the idea of his friends reconciling. This is the last point, the refreshment that we get. Paul gets refreshed through the prospect of seeing two brothers reconcile. Let's look at where that comes from. Verse 7 talks about uh, the, um, he's talking to Philemon and says, uh, Philemon's love for the church has given me, Paul, great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. So Paul's getting joy and encouragement because he's hearing how Philemon and the church at Colossae, where his church plant is, how, how that's working out. The love that Philemon shows those saints overflows to someone far, far away that hasn't, likely hasn't even visited Colossae yet. Just like when we hear stuff from Nuova Vita, or Nuova Vita hears stuff from Redeemer, or um, in the future, in Steinach and Brenner. Like, it's, it's just an encouraging thing to hear about those things. So already, Paul's joy and comfort is entangled with Philemon's house church. If they're experiencing refreshment, that makes Paul happy. And then, after Paul's appeal to free Onesimus and forgive him, Paul says this in verse 20, in that similar vein of giving people refreshment. He says, I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. And here's where he puts the weight of what their relationship means. Refresh my heart in Christ. To refresh Paul's heart in Christ is for Philemon to free and forgive Onesimus. If, if that happens, if that relationship works out well, Paul's heart's going to be refreshed in Christ. I mean, have you ever been in the middle of a conflict between friends? It is disruptive. There is no rest and refreshment there. It's not really fun. It, just, it disrupts our rest. Sometimes it's difficult to sleep. Now, how will Paul's rest in Christ come to be? This is not something maybe we first think of. By a church that he's probably not visited, that's at least a thousand miles away, working the way it ought to. That's how Paul is going to get the rest and refreshment in Jesus. Paul's world will be fractured if that doesn't happen. When they do respond positively to his challenge, that's when Paul can experience rest in the Lord, by seeing a church reflect a little bit more of heaven. That's how much reconciliation matters to Paul. 
That's how much it does. That's how much it ought to matter to us. We should be disturbed when we don't see it, when our church isn't living this way, when our MC is not living this way, when our relationships aren't this way. And we should go out of our way to make it happen. Paul gets himself involved as a mediator in this sticky situation, and for Paul, there is a cost. The cost to Paul is, well, one, it's financial. However much, how many things and money, whatever, Onesimus stole from Philemon, Paul said he's going to pay it back. So he's at least out some cash. But also the cost is losing his very heart. There's a relational cost here, because Paul could have kept Onesimus to himself, but he sent him back to Colossae. That's a very, that's a very generous thing, especially for someone like Paul, who at this time uh, is by himself under house arrest, not really having loads of friends around. He's already lonely. But Paul wanted Onesimus' good and Philemon's good above his own, so he sent him back. There's a cause, but Paul is also connected in a deep way to this community. He's reflecting in the church the call that we have towards the city. In Jeremiah 29, we're called to seek the peace and prosperity of the city that we've been called to. Because as the city prospers, so we prosper. There's this um, connectedness. So Paul's peace, his own welfare... isn't found in himself. There's not a protest this week, so we can keep the windows open at least. Uh, Paul's peace, his own welfare, isn't founded in himself. His rest isn't with his own individual. It's in the community. That's where Paul finds rest, is in community. Now, that's very different to our westernized kind of minds and way of living. How can Paul find rest in his community in this way and not idolize community? How how can it not be like codependent? How, How does that work? How can he ask Philemon for refreshment while also finding ultimate refreshment in Christ's work for him that's already been completed and finished? How are those two things, are they against each other? Like, how do they work? Because we also know not every conflict is going to have a happy ending. Not every conflict is going to work out well. How can we guard our hearts, not be codependent on other people, but also love deeply and really want and really work to have people love each other? How do we do that? The foundation for Paul to act the way he did was not some kind of concoction of his own. He's following Jesus. And Jesus gives us the answer of how to live this out. It's exactly how Jesus lives his, his lives for us. And in Philippians 2, the other uh, PHI um, book in the Bible, Philippians 2, 6 through 8, says this. Uh, it's talking about Jesus. Jesus, in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, identifying with these with us, by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus was God. If there was anyone who had the opportunity to not identify with someone else, it was Jesus. But he did not account equality with God something to be grasped and to be lorded over people. He came in a very gentle way, very meek way, very patient way, in a way that is beyond what we are even able to live out, and we're not God. He was like us. He lived and dwelt among us. He wasn't too good for us. And so there is never any excuse we can have to be too good for other people. There's also never any excuse we can have to be too bad for God. He's seen it all. Jesus put himself in our place through his life, through his death, dying in our stead. And so Jesus is the one who first, is the one who sought our mercy by challenging us. Paul wasn't like, what can I do for this this guy? Ooh, maybe I'll challenge him and ask him to seek mercy of Onesimus. Paul is just following in Jesus' footsteps. The challenge from Jesus is that we would take up our cross. 
And he carried the cross, capital C kind of cross. Jesus does not ask us to do that. That's already been done. That's already finished. But seeking the peace of others is a little cross, like a little C kind of cross. The only way we can do little C kind of cross things is because the big C cross has been finished, has been accomplished, and we get to enjoy that. We get to have that enable us to be able to live in these hard ways. Now, hard things that are good, that are good for us to be involved in, hard things that require new hearts. He gives us a new heart, not that we stay the same, that's the ultimate challenge. You've been given a new heart. How are you going to live that out? Now, we're not going to stay the same. We're going to live in different ways, seeking the mercy of other people in ways that we wouldn't have done otherwise if we had an old heart. And because we have God himself, the Holy Spirit, living in us, residing in us, he's, we, we get to be a part of his work in this world. That means he's patient with us, and that allows us to be patient for other people. He challenges us, yeah, but in patience. And so we challenge other people lovingly and in patience. And Jesus purchased our refreshment through his work of reconciliation. So there was a time we were separated from the one who made us. And we chose that for ourselves. We spat in the face of our father, said we don't want him to rule over us anymore. But for those who believed in Christ, that wall of separation between God and man has been completely destroyed, completely broken down. Regardless of whatever you feel like, if you follow Jesus, that wall does not exist anymore. And you are more connected to Jesus now. Full stop. You're more connected to Jesus now. Then what? Then whatever you want to say. Then when you die in the new heavens and earth, um, uh, in, I don't know, when you're really feeling it, when you're singing or when you're praying, you cannot be more connected to Jesus than you are right now if you follow him. That's it. The king, a good king, to rule over us and to lead us in the way that we really ought to live, the really way we want to live. Jesus did all that he did, taking on the cross, taking our sin, putting it to death through his own death, raising himself from the dead, that we may experience this kind of new life that we talked about today. That is one of the reasons that Jesus died, is for us to seek the mercy of others through the church. And now, Christ is sitting down, ruling over everything, and quite relaxed about it. He's not anxious. He's not worried. He's not in a hurry. He's quite relaxed. He's sitting. He's in control of it all. That is our foundation. And that's how Paul can identify with other people. That's how Paul can seek the mercy of other people. That's how he can rest in the reconciliation of others while also resting in the reconciliation that Jesus has for him. And that is what we want to be as a church, living out our common unity together. Not through codependency, not kind of a cold distance, but through the unity brought by the blood of Jesus. So we can't be as a church what you aren't as a Christian, but the good news is that through Jesus, we can be the kind of church that we really want to be. That's the positive side of that version. Through Jesus, we can rightly seek the mercy of others. We can step into those awkward situations. We can care deeply and not demand that other people come through for us and still continue to care deeply. See, right now, Jesus is at work through his church. Right now, this church even, the Holy Spirit in our hearts, that unifying person of the Trinity, he allows us to live out our common unity in ways that we can't otherwise. So as we all are stumbling towards faith together, even in our brokenness, we find the rest and refreshment that comes from Jesus. And he allows us to live in this way over the long haul, not just like for a week or two, not just for a gap year, but for our lives. You know, when Jesus was on earth, he did not pray that the church would grow or that God's kingdom would advance. He assumed it would. And he worked towards the end of that wood. What he did pray for, though, especially right before the cross, what he did pray for was that the church would be unified. That's the thing that Jesus is praying even now, that we would be unified. 
It's one of the reasons Jesus died, was that we would be unified. Without Jesus' death and resurrection, we would not have this common unity, and we would just be like an organization that's nice to people and likes the community, I guess. The bread and the cup that we have represent the cost to Jesus and his life. You have these um, under your chairs. And we do normally take these while we sing. We kind of have a worship and communion time all together. But through Philemon, um, we've been taking it kind of as a separate thing, as trying to represent more of our common unity together. Now, the bread and the cup represent the cost to Jesus, his death for our life. Not our life separately, 